when I started practicing architecture and I wanted to do nicer spaces, a lot of the doctors would say, no, 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 we don't need that. It's like they had grown up in a culture of deprivation and that they were strong and they could handle it. And no, I don't need any of that. But there's a different group of people now graduating from medical school. And I'm not hearing that anymore. And I do think that hospitals, in a, in a sense, have to flip the pendulum. And they've got to really focus on how they're making it possible for people to live a real life while they're working 12-hour shifts in these buildings. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the L word. Doctors and Litigation, the L word, is a self-contained podcast curriculum that uses interviews and storytelling to give you the practical and psychological preparation required to survive and even thrive during and after medical malpractice litigation. Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining. This is part one of my two-part conversation with Robin Gunther. Robin is an architect. She's a principal at Perkins & Will. She works at the intersection of healthcare architecture and sustainability policy, participating in a wide range of advocacy initiatives. She's Senior Advisor to Healthcare Without Harm. She co-coordinated the Green Guide for Healthcare, and she served on the Lead for Healthcare Committee. LEAD is an acronym, and it stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And by the by, it's the most widely used green building rating system. You might see this, for example, at the Comcast building in Philadelphia or in New York City at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Robin has received some accolades and designations. She was named the number one most influential designer in healthcare by Healthcare Design Magazine. She's also been named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. In 2014, she was a TEDMED speaker, and that's where my story with Robin begins. Let's get to the conversation. I want to go back to childhood, Detroit. Um, I really identify uh, with some of the choices you made when I was in the seventh grade. There was mechanical drawing and there was home economics. And I had very little interest in taking home ec and carrying an egg around and making sure the egg didn't break and therefore I would be ultimately a good caretaker mother. <laughs> I wanted mechanical drawing. I had heard about it from my grandfather. I really um, had seen, okay, I'll admit it, the Brady Brunch, Mike Brady do architecture. And I really loved the beauty, the accuracy, and the attention to detail of mechanical drawing. And I was the only girl in that classroom. Yes, that's true in those days. Um, I went to a vocational high school in Detroit, Cass Tech, for anybody listening who knows Detroit. Um, it's sort of a notable vocational school in the public system. And I took something called architecture, civil, and construction technology, which was heavily mechanical drawing. It was building homes at three-quarters scale. So instead of eight-foot ceilings, they had six-foot ceilings in these massive two-story laboratory, you know, barns of rooms where there would be seven teams, you know, framing a two-story house. 
and then taking it apart, plumbing it, putting the electrical wiring in, like doing it all. And, um, and you know, in, in those days, people from the construction trades would evaluate the work and they would, of course, be looking for the students that had the most, the most you know, skill to offer them apprenticeships when they graduated from high school. That world doesn't exist anymore. But certainly, you know, I knew I wanted to be an architect, and therefore I was in this vocational school, but also knew I was college prep. So I was balancing advanced placement English and math against vocational coursework with a bunch of largely male students. I think there were two of us who were female in that program um, that really mostly intended to become construction trade people and never thought they'd see college. You went on to the University of Michigan, and then you studied architecture. Your graduate work was in London. Yeah, London. Well, you know, when you're from Detroit, London is a huge change, let's just say. And um, I went to London for three years. I both worked and went to school in that period. And it really was a transformative experience for me to live in London. It was transformative to me politically. It was the first time I was really ever in a place that hadn't really adopted so much capitalism, that was trying to find some balance um, of a fairer economy with free market. Um, It's where I read Marx. I didn't learn that in the United States. Uh, so it, it was really inspiring and life-changing to go there. You returned to New York City, I think that around the year was 1979, and you stayed at the Barbizon Hotel for Women. Yes, because in New York in those days, if you came to New York, you know, with your knapsack on your back to look for work, you needed a place to stay. And that was safe if you didn't know you were going to rent an apartment until you got a job. Then you paid by the week. The bathroom was down the hall and you had this little room that you could sleep in. So um, it was it was an experience. You were on your way. Obviously, you were an architect. And at some point, you specifically started, I'll say, specializing, speciating into healthcare architecture. Before we go there, I want to just um, bring a story from your childhood. I understand your sister was an emergency department nurse. And sometimes uh, if you were going to be getting a ride home with her, you would go to the hospital, even to the emergency department, do your work, do your homework, and... Um, uh, sometimes help out gophering, doing different different tasks. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that often, but yeah, I would grab coffee for people, uh, and they could be families, they could be doctors. It, it didn't matter. It, I was just kind of a gopher. Mm-hmm. And, and so the staff would assign me things to run and get, and, and um, it was, you know, because as an architect, you look at everything spatially, I spent my time watching that environment and thinking about, you know, places that I could see, kind of impingement of activity, um, clustering, etc. That 
Um, and then, of course, the irony was that the very first project I worked on in healthcare was an emergency department. And so it wasn't foreign to me. You actually started an architecture firm. You were pushing clients to use different materials, but you got pushback. And then at some point, you sold your firm to Perkins & Will, and here you are. I got interested in the idea that one of the major drivers of the institutional feel of hospital buildings was their materials. And the firm I interned in had really worked on lighting and getting the lighting away from people staring into the fixtures when they were being wheeled down the corridor. You know, it's hard to believe we used to design hospitals that did that, but we did. And so they were focused on that as the big move, but that wasn't fundamentally deinstitutionalizing the physical environment. And so I made that kind of my mission to deinstitutionalize initially. And then along that journey, I learned much more about the chemical composition of these building materials, their impact on health and well-being. Um, and the more I learned about that, the more determined I was that the way we were building healthcare spaces was not fundamentally healthy. You and I met in 2014 uh, at TED Med, and you gave uh, a talk. And, and in that, you talked about, and in some of your other talks, you've talked about hospitals being towers of disease. And you asked, are hospitals making us sick? And I mean, I was taken by your talk and by your work. I had never heard of this concept of healthcare architecture. Um, all of it was intuitive and made sense, but I just hadn't been awoken to what you were putting forth, what you were saying. And I had finished emergency medicine residency in 2001, but everything you talked about in terms of what these hospitals do to the health of people who work in them and who are patients in them, I... Like, yes, I didn't see daylight for four years. My sister said to me, Risa, you have no suntan lines. Like, you've not been in the sun. And not only had I not actually been in the sun, but also I had been inside four years, artificial lighting. Um, emergency apartments, for some reason, rarely have windows, like, the, to get natural light. So is this artificial lighting. You've talked about flooring. And 5 o'clock in the morning, every morning, um, the buffers would come out and there was this chemical and when I would have overnight shifts I would say to myself self I'm pretty sure I'm breathing in poison right now like there's definitely there's no way these chemicals can be good for me and once I finished residency training I started exposing myself again to sunshine and when I would look at you know friends that were a year a few years younger their skin literally looked green. Like they didn't look healthy because of the environments in which we were training. The irony. So a lot of what you shared in your TED Talk was aha for me. Well, that's what my TED Talk aimed to do, obviously, so I'm glad it succeeded. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think hospital environments had gotten to the point where they were more and more 
petrochemical plastic coated. Everything was washable. You know, everyone was completely worried about damage and longevity. And so everything had to be completely resistant. And um, and the bottom line is that that what you are describing, the idea of being in the dark, I still don't think there's as much research as there should be on what happens to shift workers in healthcare settings. Um, you know, there's been a recent move towards circadian rhythm lighting and beginning to address some of the, but, but it's based on, I think, addressing the performance issues of shifts and somewhat the health data that has emerged about, um, you know, increased cancer risk for people who work night shifts, um, more reproductive issues. Like it, it feels like we're just learning how these built environments really impact us. But certainly when you're trained as an architect, it's easy to see when you walk through those environments that they need a lot of rethinking. So, for example, if you look at the hospitals built over the last 15, 20 years, you'll see more emphasis on getting daylight into the operating suites, even if they're below grade, courtyards cut in. Even if people can't go out there, it still is light in the day and dark at night. So I think, I think we've come some distance thanks to tools like LEAD and people like me who have continued to push this incessantly in the marketplace. Yeah. And if you can add, what would be another example of when you walk into a hospital, what you see that healthcare workers and patients may not see? Well, you know, I'll go back to something that you brought up, which was the buffing machines that I got, I developed my understanding of what happens with buffing machines from the OSHA data that showed that healthcare workers have the highest rate of adult onset asthma. And when, when OSHA saw that, they went into health, healthcare environments and started looking around and realized, of course, that all that maintenance has to take place while people are in occupancy. It's not like you're vacating the ED overnight so someone can clean like in an office building, right? And, and so, um, and, and it led to the EPA sort of suggesting to hospitals and OSHA suggesting to hospitals that they should cut quaternary ammonium compounds, which are in cleaning products, and relook at the contents of buffing machines and try to move away from waxing floors and stripping them. Because it's really the caustic chemicals that come from stripping the wax. You know, you want to adhere the wax, so you make all these bonds, and then you have to unadhere the wax, so you need really strong chemicals. And nurses, doctors, patients, families, we're all walking around while it's happening. You know, I tell my friends... Um who are outside medicine, I'm like, you know, I'm an emergency doctor. You should worry about me. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we have high rates of addiction. We have high rates of burnout. We have high rates now of cancer uh, exposure risk. It's really interesting. But you are on a topic that I wanted to um, learn more about, materiality and asthma gins. And 
there is a Perkins and Will. Initially, there was 25 precautionary building materials. And then I looked on the website. There's a watch list. There's a sunset list. I'm wondering if you can walk me and the audience through um, what's behind these lists. And which, if I can give an analogy, it reminds me of like high fructose corn syrup of food is what these materials are to buildings. That's a pretty good analogy. But let me back up and say that um, there is a broader movement in architecture now that transcends healthcare that is really looking at the fact, and this will be surprising probably to a lot of people in medicine, that building products don't have to disclose their ingredients. It's not on the package, so it's very different from food or pharma or other, the world in which you inhabit as a physician. It is the Wild West of stuff. And I think over the last 20 to 30 years, it's gotten to be a preferred place to put pretty bad stuff. Because if you put it in a building, it's away for a long time. And it might seem that it's pretty inert if it's fly ash on the backing of carpet or it's fly ash in drywall. But, you know, fly ash has a lot of heavy metals. And so essentially, I think our buildings over the last 20 years have taken on some of the waste burden that we've generated as society, trying to beneficially reuse waste product without really having to test the health consequences of that. And I think it makes it very different from the generation of buildings that happened before World War II, before there was really this influx of petrochemical products in the building material landscape. And and consequently, it's just... So, so there's a movement to understand what these ingredients are. So there's a voluntary disclosure methodology now called the Health Product Declaration, where manufacturers can tell, can disclose voluntarily all the ingredients of their products. If they want to do it through a third party because they have proprietary ingredients that they don't want publicly listed, they can do that. Um, but that's like the first step. And what it's unlocked is the ability for lists like you described, our precautionary list. The, there's another rating system called the Living Building Challenge. It has a red list to really begin to pinpoint the chemicals that are of the most concern initially that are high volume in um, building products and then um, try to figure out more, more better alternatives for those products. And actually, it's interesting that if anyone has, has followed the train derailment on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, 50 cars filled with toxic chemicals, most of the reporting on that incident is talking about these chemicals being, dest being destined for building products. And so I think it's just something I think society doesn't generally appreciate or understand that we used to be completely shooting in the dark. And it's really only been in the last sort of five to seven years that we're getting some amount of information. And I think the hope is that, you know, as more and more manufacturers voluntarily disclose 
that it will depoliticize the idea of disclosure and it will make it easier to require it. Audience, if you're wondering, the list is available on the website. Robin, can you, like, what might, what might be some of these materials and that perhaps those of us that aren't familiar with building materials, with toxic building materials, might, what might be some that we may recognize? Well, I'll start with an easy one, and that's antimicrobials. So certainly the healthcare marketplace has been a target for added antimicrobials into products, hoping that it reduces MRSA, it reduces contact spread on surfaces, etc. Um, most of the products being introduced in the marketplace have no third-party peer-reviewed testing that shows that they have any efficacy. It's just putting the chemical in there and then claiming that they're healthier. You know, some building products like paint have used antimicrobials as preservatives for a long time. So your paint in your can doesn't get moldy. That's not what we're talking about. We're now talking about this race to add more and more of these. And of course, antimicrobials, some of these antimicrobial chemicals are forever. And all they're going to do is make more resistant, more resistant bacteria. And so like, let's kind of stop it at the gate. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is flame retardants. You know, flame retardants for a long time were required in hospital environments because everybody was worried that, I don't know, the oxygen would explode in the room and the furniture would catch on fire and, you know, you couldn't be having that. And so everything in the space included flame retardant chemicals. And flame retardant chemicals are also very toxic. And, and as the CDC has measured, the, has done biomonitoring in Americans really since 2000, they started seeing this increase in flame retardants in the blood of Americans. Um, that's when they sort of went to pajama manufacturers and said, maybe, maybe you don't want to be using these DECA you know, flame retardants because they're showing up in the kid's blood and maybe you want to be doing cotton, loose fit, like uh, finding a way around this. And But it was really actually in in the world of furnishings and interior elements in buildings, it was really only after the Chicago Tribune did a Pulitzer Prize-winning series on flame retardants in furniture where they actually showed that there was no science that showed they even worked, that they were not providing the functional benefit that people thought they were getting when they paid for them. That was what made the codes flip, is, is when it, it wouldn't have been the health impacts of these chemicals. It took, it took the fact that they didn't work. And now, of course, we're making the same point about the antimicrobials. Maybe these antimicrobials are really not working the way they're said to. And, you know, I'll just do another spin on that. When Michael Pollan wrote his book, Food Rules, I don't know when that was, but anyway, he had all these rules about food. And we wanted to do some material health rules 
about 10 years ago. And so we picked up his book and said, what can we learn from Michael Pollan's book? And he had a rule that said, beware of food products that make health claims. And what he was referring to was all the stuff in the inner aisles of the supermarket that say heart healthy or, you know, lowers your cholesterol, right? Like he was going after that. And we looked at that and said, well, nobody surely will be making health claims about building products. That's just, what would they say? But with, again, with the antimicrobials, that's what we're seeing is the emergence of health claims. And you just say, stop the music here. Where's the science? I love that you just said, stop the music. I had a flashback when you just shared this story from which I learned a lot. I think I was in elementary school and at the local department store buying, my mom was buying Carter's pajamas and the saleswoman said, you want to get flame resistant pajamas for the kids. And I, I remember thinking, you know, my pre-medical, pre-pre-pre-medical mind was like flame resistant. Am I going to catch on fire? What does that mean? You know, safety first. And it's remarkable how much of this just feeds this sense of anxiety and public concern and sort of this um, n- neurosis. Well, I hope I'm not neurotic about it, but um, I do think... I don't think it feeds it enough, actually, for people to demand, you know, real solutions to this. Um, You know, I came across an ad in a magazine in the 1950s that was suggesting to people that they should put wallpaper in their babies' rooms that was impregnated with DDT so that it would kill the mosquitoes. I kid you not. And, and, you know, what have we learned about that? Like, um, it, it just is amazing how building products are marketed and how they respond to, in some sense, that kind of hysteria. Like you're describing with your pajamas. Oh, it sounds safer. Oh, I should have that DDT-infused wallpaper. If there were a country that the audience could look to that really has healthcare architecture, green building, sustainability, sustainability building right, is there a country you could point to? I think the Scandinavian countries do a pretty good job. Um, If you look at the hospitals in Sweden, in Denmark, Norway, they're sort of top of the game. Germany's pretty good. Like, basically, countries that have prioritized sustainability for longer than we have. And I think it's absolutely true that when you have the government paying the bill for health care, you can make different decisions about investing in higher performance to reap that benefit over a 50-year life. It's very difficult for current hospital boards and C-suite leadership to make those make similar decisions. You gave a talk where you and your co-author referenced the paper that you published. And in that paper, there were 10 new rules for healthcare. And this ties into what you were just sharing, that rule number 10 was better buildings 
cost more initially but cost less over time. And so that concept of return on investment and the upfront costs often stops people from going full in in making sustainable design decisions. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's true that the earlier you make decisions around sustainability, the less they cost because they wind up being integrated into the design of the building in a more fundamental way. If you try to take a project that is pretty far along in design and then overlay it, which people were doing for in the early years of sustainability, they'd kind of wake up mid-design and say, oh, maybe we should have a lead building. So then it would cost more. And, and you know, I think the other, the other myth in all that is that you have to deconstruct is what does a hospital cost? Like what a hospital costs is regional. It depends on the local construction market. It's very different, let's say, in Texas than California than New York. Um, and I mean radically different. So um, it's very difficult to generalize cost decisions about hospitals because they are so both geographical and programmatically determined, right? I mean, a hospital with 65 operating rooms is going to cost more than one with 240 beds and three operating rooms, right? So it, and, and that's why, in a way, I've really tried to tell hospital executives and people in the industry, like, to focus on the sustainability and sort of value engineer that away is really misguided because it's really if it costs a little more it it's noise and you'll get it back over time um, in reduced operating costs in better employee satisfaction and you talked earlier about burnout and that's another thing I want to really come back to because that's increasingly since COVID it's been um, really on my mind a lot. Let's go there now. Okay, so burnout. It is clear that COVID has had an enormous impact on frontline healthcare workers. And interestingly, um, in some of the work that we've done in hospitals recently that are, quote, more sustainable, one of the key elements that we've been adding to those buildings are outdoor space on nursing units for staff or a kind of congregate outdoor space, easy to access from nursing units for staff. And the feedback we've gotten from the clients was that it was one of the highest satisfiers during COVID because people could go there and pull their PPE. They weren't allowed to remove their PPE anywhere in the building except up there, out there, whatever. And to me, you know, I certainly never made that argument that in a pandemic, this outdoor space is going to really pay back. But it's interesting that that's what they've experienced. I do think, you know, the last, most of my career as a practicing architect in healthcare, we've been very focused on the patient experience. Because I think, you know, hospitals have been trying to grab market share. They've been, they've been trying to grow, consolidate, etc. 
And so they've been very driven by the satisfaction of the people who use the service. They've been less attentive to what kind of workspace they're really delivering to people. And I will say that part of that is generational also in medicine. And I'd love your feedback on that. That when I started practicing architecture and I wanted to do nicer spaces, a lot of the doctors would say, no, 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 we don't need that. It's like they had grown up in a culture of deprivation, right? And that they were strong and they could handle it and... And, you know, no, I don't need any of that. But there's a different group of people now graduating from medical school. And I, I'm not hearing that anymore. And I do think that hospitals, in a, in a sense, have to flip the pendulum. And they've got to really focus on how they're making it possible for people to live a real life while they're working 12-hour shifts, you know, in these buildings. You could not more accurately describe healthcare and the experience and the generational change. So Daniel Ofri wrote a beautiful op-ed in the New York Times about medicine and that it's actually a very sadistic industry and that people, healthcare workers, let's say doctors, are masochistic. Give us more, take more. We don't need to sleep. We don't need to eat. We don't need a bathroom break. We'll work long shifts. We'll put off um, having, getting pregnant and having babies. Like, I don't need, I don't need, I don't need. No, no, you know, I don't have mental health problems. I'll never, uh, I don't need to talk about. And if I do talk about my mental health, I'm not going to, I'm going to lose my, my license. Like, it, it's just the system is pretty sick. It's been uh, one positive that we can look at with this pandemic is what has been the scab torn off, what has been unearthed. And you have identified um, exactly what is happening, the pivots in medicine, the, wait a minute, we need to sleep. Wait a minute, you know, being on call for 36 hours, like you don't want someone to take care of you if they've been up that long, if they haven't eaten, if they haven't rested. And I think even that awareness of feeling healthier at work, such as windows that open or seeing natural light. And I love the word biophilia. And, and, you know, green building, this concept of green building is something that you have worked on your whole career. And so thanks for those observations. And there's no question that the burnout we're seeing in healthcare is a long time coming. And it's kind of, you know, come to its head. Right. And I think, actually, if you unpack that a little more, it's also really, the, in a sense, the shortcoming of the institutions to provide some of the high-touch amenities that, that you see rampant in office spaces. Um, you know, they just haven't come to healthcare. And yet, you know, I was working on a master plan not long ago where we had a proposal to have sort of a staff, a staff concierge space so that, for example, if you wanted your dry cleaning delivered or you needed, you know, if you were going to receive something, it would happen there. And then you would pick it up on your way out. Or if you were buying that healthy dinner from the cafeteria, th that you could pick it up there. Um, 
that all that kind of thinking, I think, is the next stage of how do we really support people to do their best work. And and I think the work environments have, haven't really changed much in since that generation of deprivation. I mean, I think one of the moments for me, my aha moment of that was in, I don't know, 2006 or something when this business writer named Lance Secretan gave a talk. And he said, there's really not a nursing shortage. There's a shortage of places nurses want to work. And I, that was my equivalent of you saying it sets you back on your knees. And I was thinking it's true. Nurses have many choices besides being on an acute care floor or an ICU floor. Uh, they can work for pharmaceutical companies. I mean, doctors have the same choices, right? People have a lot of other choices about mapping a career outside of frontline medicine. And, and the hospital environments just are a real downer for a lot of people. The Risa Wrap-Up. I'm going to start where I always start, which is by giving thanks to my guest. Special thanks, major thanks to Robin Gunther for joining me in conversation and giving me so much of her time. Audience, as you can tell, Robin is a visible voice, particularly in healthcare architecture. She was calling out and stressing the importance of sustainability way before people were willing to listen or really bought into the concept. She noted that people were becoming sick in hospitals, not just they were sick and that's why they were in the hospital, but they became sick in the hospital. And as I shared with you, my eyes were completely opened in 2014 when I heard her TEDMED talk and she talked about something that I knew I had experienced during my hospital training. Join us next week where we'll listen to part two of the conversation. And until then, take good care of yourselves. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.